For all you lovers of the Beehive State, welcome to the Utah Fan Club Podcast, where we're spreading the buzz about why Utah is the bee's knees. This western state is quite the hub to learn more. Join with us at the Utah Fan Club. We want to give a special thanks to our sponsor, Wazi Tech, Utah's premier IT support company. They will help you with any of your IT needs. Go to www.wazitech.com. That's W-A-Z-I-T-E-C-H.com. Hello, welcome to the Utah Fan Club today. I am Nat Lovell and I am co-hosting with Steph today. I am her professional wing woman in the dating world and you will see why that comes into play in a second because Steph, who are we interviewing? Utah's dating coach, Elisa Goodwin-Snell and she just is full of wisdom and she's representing Salt Lake County for one of the, the local businesses there. And while we're, when, while we're calling it the dating coach because that's what she is, if you're married, don't tune out. This is There's a lot of great things you can pull from this episode today. And also how to help your single friends yes, too. Yes. So she has tons of experience. She has over 23 years as a marriage slash dating coach and combined with all her things. And she'll talk a little bit more about that. Here's our, our interview with the dating coach. Hey, how are you doing? Alisa? Good. How are you? Good. And so I, I also have with us my friend Natalie Lovell. Okay. Hello, Natalie. How are you? I have to tell you, I am very excited to even meet you over the phone because Steph raves about you and, and the things that you say. Oh, sweet. I have, I'm not going to lie. If I can be so bold, basically what you say is like Bible to Steph. So <laughs> she'll like say stuff and I mean, it's like, it's like doctrine. So I am very excited. Hey, but it's true because like so, so many times friends will be like, okay, I know that the dating coach would say not to do this and they would think, like, we all think that we're the exception sometimes. I am the exception, Steph. Don't tell me I'm not. You are, no. That's awesome. You have been doing this for how many years? It's, it's kind of complicated to describe because I spent 17 years as a marriage and family therapist, but then I started writing books. I started writing books about 13 years ago. And then I started doing dating coaching around that same time. So your books you were writing were more focused on marriage and family, though, not on, like, the dating side. Oh, dating. Oh, they They were were on dating. Okay. Yeah, they were all dating. Yeah. And then I started doing dating coaching, and then it was about seven years ago, I started doing just dating coaching. So, so yeah, so I have a total of 23 years of experience between marriage counseling and with all of it overlapping. What made you decide to become the dating coach? Like what brought so that? This is the long version and then I'll try to keep it short. By the age of 24, I was a marriage family therapist and married at 25, had my son at 27 and I was divorced at 28. And, you know, my situation was, was, you know, a bad situation. I didn't want to go through a divorce because of my situation, and then put my son in a worse situation. You know what I'm saying? So I was still doing marriage and family therapy, and I was trying to connect all the dots between these bad relationships. And the key factors that I saw was a lack of empathy, a lack of self-control, and a lack of personal responsibility. So if you were looking at somebody who was either unfaithful or addicted or dishonest or someone who was abusive, you know, all of these really kind of tragic, terrible situations that didn't seem to get better, right? Like people can do something and kind of slip into a bad behavior, but then they never go back to it. And then there are those who perpetuate and maintain those behaviors. And the ones that were just chronic, there was always that common denominator of a lack of empathy, self-control, and personal responsibility. And then addictions always create those issues because when someone gets addicted, their empathy goes down and their self-control and and they become deceptive and dishonest and lie and manipulate. Hopefully if they get over their addiction, they return to a better level of functioning. But people who are personality disordered, that is definitely chronic. And so that became my key to making sure that I didn't get back in the same situation. So I created a three-day rule for identifying those who I felt would be showing signs of a lack of empathy, self-control, and personal responsibility. To abbreviate, I'll call it ESP. So I was looking for signs of that in three dates or less. And that kind of became my safety model of making sure I didn't get back in the same situation. I remarried four years later. And after I'd been married for a couple of years, my husband kept saying, when are you going to write that book you always thought you would write? And I never planned on writing it unless I knew a program worked. <laughs> my theory paid off and I was in a good situation. 
and my husband and I just celebrated our 15th anniversary. So that was just really fun. So anyway, so he was just really supportive and I was struggling with infertility and my son was in first grade. And so it just became the the natural thing to do to start writing my book as a distraction for my infertility. And then, you know, it just naturally evolved into me doing speaking and then working with singles and, and my infertility continued to be a struggle. So I just kept writing books and I completed my dating system and made the transition to just doing dating coaching seven years ago. And then we adopted our sweet girl. But, you know, had I not gone through the struggles I've gone through, I wouldn't be doing what I was doing. You know, we never see when we're in the middle of a struggle, the, the purpose or the blessings that there are. But I feel really, really grateful that I've had the struggles I've had. I wouldn't say that at the time, but I just feel been able to focus on and do some things that I'm really grateful I've had the opportunity to do because of my struggles. So but there's an end to every trial. And that's what I tell my clients all the time. Like we're in the middle of our struggles and we don't see the purpose, but there is always an end to the trial. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's where we're at now. We're, we're just in a great place. That's awesome. <laughs> no, that's thing. awesome. It sounds like quite the journey there, but that's awesome. And yeah. as you were talking about how if you wouldn't have had those struggles with infertility, then you wouldn't have had the time to like blink to write your book and to work with singles. And I'm one of those singles that I'm just so grateful for you. Because <laughs> like Nat said, how she's like, death regards what you say. <laughs> you have just given me like so much hope, I feel like. And I'm just being like, it's not you. It's your technique and and teaching me just so many different things, which we'll talk about, about later. But so you get divorced and you're this marriage and family therapist. How was that? What was it like being a divorced marriage family therapist? <laughs> yeah, that was not fun. I mean, you know, the thing was, it was it was embarrassing. I mean, there were definitely those times when it would come up where clients would ask, you know, so are you married? And it was it was hard because I I really credit a lot of the experience that I had during my marriage to feeling feeling the love and support of God in the midst of the trial, because it was, you know, it's been nearly 20 years since my divorce, right? So I don't really like bashing on my ex. Like, I don't see the point in that. And I, I feel for his struggles. But at the same time, my story is still my story, mm-hmm. right? And so the, the reality is there was a lot of verbal abuse and a lot of control and manipulation. And I was really alienated from friends and family. And and I had to deal with, you know, the things that I was going through by myself. And so in the situation, I, I still felt love from God and I still felt my worth and support from him and it that was really the only place that I had refuge and so when I went through the divorce felt like God helped to pluck me out of that situation as it got worse helped me to find what I needed to have peace in it and then when it got worse to pluck me out of it so when I'm sitting there with clients and they're saying are you a divorced marriage and family therapist well when they're saying so are you married? <laughs> and I'm not wearing a wedding ring. So, you know, it would seem pretty obvious that maybe I'm not. But, but when they would ask me that, I, I felt such shame. But I became a marriage and family therapist because I never wanted to get divorced. And given my history and family background, you know, that was, I was very much a perfectionist. And that was my key to, to never getting divorced was through perfectionism. So when people would ask me that, it just seemed so tempting to put on a fake ring. I mean, it just, I could just avoid the question by putting on a fake ring. And yet I just felt in my heart, it would be a lie. And, and I felt that I would serve myself better if I just continue to be true to the truth and work through my fear and find the faith to face the situation with courage. And so anyway, I, I knelt in prayer and I just said, Heavenly Father, what do I say? And as I pondered on that, I just felt this prompting, so to speak, to review what my marriage really said about me and to know who I was. And, and it said that I worked hard and I cared and I loved him and I took responsibility and I was willing to try and I made some mistakes, but there was nothing there that was anything to be ashamed of. People would ask me if I was married. I began just having a simple statement that I could 
views that reflected the truth. And I was basically just saying, actually, I'm divorced and I, I have no regrets about marrying my ex-husband and I feel really at peace with my decision that I needed to divorce. And I trust that you will know if this is the right place for you. And, you know, I'm happy to help you in any way I can. And I just left it at that. I just showed confidence in the face of the, the shame the potential shame of that situation. You know, I, I don't think I had any client who ended counseling with me because of that, <laughs> you know, and a lot of times they would say, well, now I feel like, you know, you can really relate and it actually helps me feel yeah, more I, say, I think that can give you some more credibility and some more understanding in those situations. I mean, you, you didn't come from a perfect marriage. Typically what they said, and for me, the, the value in that was learning that it's not our perfection that makes us lovable. It's our imperfections. And it's not perfection that makes us safe. It's seeing how people handle things when we're imperfect. And in the dating process, that was one of my mistakes that I made the first time around is I was so easily accommodating and tried to be the perfect girlfriend and I would read books and I wouldn't speak up and I wouldn't express my feelings and needs. I didn't show enough faith in myself, enough faith in the men that I was with, enough faith in my ability to, to walk away, I would suppose. There's a difference between showing an anxious attachment, an avoidant attachment, and a secure attachment. And I definitely had more of an anxious attachment pattern in my 20s, and I used perfectionism in this anxious attachment as a way of trying to be lovable and trying to be loved. But what I didn't realize was that it's not my sacrifice that makes someone love me, it's theirs. And, and the more deeply they sacrifice, the more deeply they love. So perfectionism doesn't require anyone to sacrifice deeply. I sacrifice deeply because of my perfectionism, but it doesn't make them sacrifice deeply. And so by accepting my imperfections with faith and courage, speaking up, expressing my feelings and needs, I would be able to discover those who would invest and sacrifice and see my value and stay engaged versus those who wouldn't. And that is what would make me safe, is discovering the difference between those people and trusting that the kind of person I was looking for would see my value and would pursue me and invest in me. And it wasn't my perfections. It's not how they act when I am perfect. It's how they act when I'm imperfect. That really is what defines the situation. Well, it's, it's true, though, because how often are we perfect in life, right? I mean, we may have a few of those moments. <laughs> yeah, and we can't sustain it. We can't sustain it. And I remember when dating my husband, there was a moment when we were having a conflict. And after the conflict, you know, he was very kind and he stayed engaged and we, we resolved the conflict for the most part. And he left. And after the conflict, I knelt in prayer and I was just like, you know, should I apologize? I felt really insecure because I had been so flawed and, and imperfect, but kind. But I, I felt worried, like, should I apologize? And I just felt this peaceful prompting of, you know what, he's a man. He can handle it. He can he can be inspired to work through it. Leave him and trust him to work through the feelings and things like that and just let it let go and trust. There's a lot of things from my experiences that have become a big part of what I try to help my clients to do because I've learned how to be secure, individually secure, so that I could actually experience and enjoy someone else who can be secure with me and we can have a secure relationship together. But fear can't be the motivator in a secure relationship. It's just not the motivator. So what do you mean by that? Fear of what? Like when somebody fear, fear, in a fear of like you know, if I'm not good enough, fear of making mistakes, fear of how the other person will respond, fear of rejection or loss, fear of, again, their response. Instead, I need to just focus on doing what I know is right for me, flawed and imperfect as it is, and trust, trust that thing and trust God and trust myself and trust the other person and trust that it will be enough, that I'm enough and my good faith efforts are enough. They are motivated and they care and will somehow figure it out and not try to rush in and fix everything or be perfect, you know, and not justify, not rationalize, not minimize, not ignore bad behavior, address things directly with kindness. The truth sets us free. And when we're afraid of the truth and we're afraid of facing things, then we end up in that fear-based place that keeps us trapped in, in either anxious or avoidant patterns. So for instance, with a lot of my clients, they have avoidant attachment. And so they experience, you know, something that makes them uncomfortable and they just disengage. Um, they shut down. 
they they feel numb. They, they ghost uh, people. people have more of an avoidant attachment. <laughs> they ghost. Exactly. So what do you tell them then? Well, a lot of the reasons why they do that is because they don't have the skill to face that situation. There's four things that drive people to be either anxious or avoidant. And the first is an underlying anxiety problem. A lot of times people don't realize because most of the clients I work with are very high functioning. Um, They don't have significant mental health issues. They live good lives and they're usually educated. My, My clients are just really great people. So a lot of times they don't see that they have an underlying anxiety problem. I work with a lot of people who struggle with perfectionism and I think it's part of their religious and personal values. So they they try really hard to do all the right things and they don't see how anxiety can actually be perpetuating their over-dependence on perfectionism. So there's an underlying anxiety and then oftentimes those who have more of an avoidant attachment, there is common thinking errors that they buy into and believe that we need to confront. And then they'll have a situational trigger and underlying a, underlying a situational trigger is a core fear. And if they don't realize that every time they have that situational trigger or core fear, how that helps them to shut down, become numb, or how it makes them feel more unattracted to their partner or more anxious or distressed or more disconnected if they don't recognize that situational trigger and core fear and then instead of running away face it with skills and face it head on and move in the direction of creating a secure attachment and staying more engaged and seeing that they can work through it so if they turn around and they ghost and they walk away They're just going to face that situation again next time, but they're going to keep believing that the problem was the other person instead of them and their skills or lack of skills. And so a lot of people who do that perfectionism that's on the avoidance side, they just, they keep thinking that it's the secret is finding a better, a better partner, someone who doesn't have that issue, but it's, it's like it's like anxiety is a parasite and it always wants a host and that, that parasite always grabbing onto something and they don't realize that what they need is the skills to stay engaged and slay that dragon, so to speak, and to see how strong and capable they really are and how capable their relationships really are and to to hang in there long enough to get that secure attachment. The last of the four things is pressure. So a lot of times people under the experience of pressure They either feel more anxiously attached, and the best way to describe an anxious attachment is that the person is focused on whether or not they can get and keep a relationship, and they have anxiety and obsession with the other person is thinking, where the relationship is at, and commitment. And the person who is on the avoidance side is more concerned about whether or not they want the relationship, and they tend to feel more frozen and numb and disconnected and afraid of being trapped, and they don't feel the strong emotions that the person with the anxious attachment feels. pressure can make people either become a lot more clingy or it can make the person feel a lot more disconnected. So those are the four things that contribute to those people who go ghosting, you know, that just run and disappear. Did that answer your question, Natalie? Yeah, no, for sure. I'm, a, I'm okay. one of your clients and I'll, I'll let everyone know that. But, um, <laughs> I, I remember one of, it was like one of the first times I went to you, you told me you're like, I think that you're a perfectionist when it comes to dating. And I'm like, no, me? I'm like, my mom's a perfectionist. My sister's a perfectionist. Not me. Not me. <laughs> I, I don't need to have perfect. My handwriting isn't perfect. Like, my not to go into their perfectionism. But anyway, so I was like, that's not me. So I had in my mind that six weeks dating a guy, I just became boring. And, and you taught me, actually, I think that you have more of this anxious attachment. And so when they start to pull away a little bit, you you start being more anxious. And so I start initiating more and then they start pulling away more and more. And so yeah. you really taught me like, okay, it's not, it's not that you're boring, but it's your technique. And that was such yeah. a game changer for me to be like, oh, okay, well, I need to change this. And I still haven't. It's still a huge struggle of mine because I just always want to initiate it, things. But It will be. It will be until you're in a secure attachment that has sustained itself over a period of time. And I think that, you know, the, the problem with stage one and stage two is you don't have secure attachments. So I have a five-stage skill development program. So stage one is focused on the first six weeks of dating and everything you need to do and say that can help support the process, right? You know, and I just like to empower people. We don't have control over, you know, how a date goes or how a date responds. But at the end of every experience, I can look at 
how I progressed and not with perfection, but how I progressed with confidence and faith in myself and whatever those skills might be that I needed in that situation, whether it was expressing a feeling, need, or opinion, or saying no, or or seeing the situation as not my responsibility to fix, or, you know, staying emotionally engaged instead of shutting down. You know, I can progress no matter what the situation is in the first six weeks, and I can feel empowered in that. So that's the first six weeks of dating, and that's stage one. Stage two is all focused on deepening the connection and getting to know the person better. And of course, the most important far-reaching part of stage one and stage two is having fun. And a lot of singles aren't even having fun anymore. So they're already stressing about if they're the one, yeah, if they're married, if they're yeah. what, you know. Because you get anxious or avoidant and it's like... And what are they doing? And what does this mean? And, and what am I supposed to do? So I try to answer that question by giving people lots of knowledge that they can focus on and that they can they can remember, I'm just doing my part. I'm making a good faith effort. And then I'm going to trust, relax, and let go. This person cares about getting into a relationship and they can be inspired about what they need to do and about their situation. Situation and, and they can have the self-control and the personal responsibility to hang in there. I just need to do my part and trust that it's going to work out, whether with them or someone else. And so what I want people in stage one and stage two to do is I can't have a secure attachment to a person because we're not at that stage yet. What am I going to have a secure attachment to then? I'm going to have a secure attachment to myself. I'm going to have a secure attachment to my future and that I am going to succeed and I'm going to feel a secure attachment to the goodness of the opposite sex and to the goodness of people and their their competence and their ability to figure things out. And I'm going to have a secure attachment with God that I'm not alone in this process. And, and not everyone who's listening may have a faith in God. And I realize that and you know I'm just sharing my experiences but you need to have a faith at least in something and I would hope that that faith would be in yourself and the goodness of the opposite sex and and the fact that relationships are good and you can have a good relationship and if you use the right skills the kind of person you're looking for will value and appreciate it what birds of a feather flock together and there is a law of attraction that we tend to attract people who are similar to ourselves. And there are a lot, there's a whole world of people out there who want a secure attachment with someone too. And when you use good skills and, and the more secure you act, the more it makes other people feel secure around you and the more they crave more of your type. And so if I am more securely grounded individually, then I, I become like a magnet to people who want and like the way that feels. There's a lot of things as you talk that I've even forgotten. Oh, yeah, that, that comes from you because it's just like these things that are like ingrained in my friends. <laughs> so like the you love through sacrifice. I don't know. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Steph say that. So I anytime that any of us are like, oh, yeah, he, he doesn't need to pick me up or like, no, I don't want to express my needs because I, I don't want him to have to sacrifice. It's like, no, you love through sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. And so that's one. And then just everything that you were talking talking about like it being a faith-filled process and it's not you it's your technique but another big one that we haven't talked about is he's not my only chance for happiness and I can't tell you how many times when I will be talking to friends or I'll be saying it or they will and they'll be like I know he's not my only chance for happiness (laughs) but I just really like him like that's so ingrained in into my friends but like these things they really do just help in giving that that hope and making that anxiety or that avoidance attachment but in just giving that hope that like okay dating is a process and it's okay if not everyone is interested because someone is going to be but if every person that I get rejected by I'm just like well I'm gonna go hide in my room you're never gonna find anyone and that's one thing that I love too is in your what do you call your your videos what is that called your the master your technique videos or the The lasting love academy or it's not your technique okay the lasting love academy yeah so in your Lasting Love Academy, you you talk about how you give people the challenge to, like, get rejected. You're like, okay, keep on going until, yeah. and, 
like try to get rejected twice or whatever. And then it's not as big of a deal. Like you aren't trying. How do you word it? I'm saying it wrong. Yeah. So what I do is I teach people to focus on the skills for looking and acting strong and confident and showing that they can face rejection with confidence, make the other person feel great and walk away in a way that shows their value and their head is up and their chin is forward. And, and if I can, if I can face rejection and handle it well, it makes me so much more desirable, so much more desirable. And that person might even reconsider it you know, their interest in me. And they're certainly going to talk positively about me with others. And so what a lot of singles will do is they're afraid of rejection. So they play this very safe game and they, they linger for too long and they hang out and they talk themselves out of caring about the person and they convince themselves that the person wouldn't be interested instead of just doing a technique that would show their interest. So for guys, it would simply be saying, I've got to go, but I would love to continue to get to know you better. And I just know I would regret it if I didn't ask, can I get your number? I'd love to give you a call. And for the girl, it would be to say, you know, I've got to go. But I would love to have continued this conversation. I would love you to call me sometime so we can continue getting to know each other. And then squeeze their arm and look at them in the eye, squeeze the person's arm, and then just walk away. And at that point, at that moment, they've taken action in a confident and strong way or a confident and feminine way. And they know either the person's going to take and respond or they're not. But in that moment, that as they're walking away, that person is not their only chance for happiness, but they were good practice. And if they don't practice handling rejection well and looking strong and confident, they're never going to date the people they want to date. So once they have those skills for handling rejection, looking confident, then I want them to go out and I want them to approach more people looking for the rejection. Because at that point, they've really gone for the people they really want to date. And a lot of times they just don't even get rejected. You know what I mean? So it, it ends up defeating their fear and bringing their fear down to size and showing really how much fun they can have and how little people will really reject them, at least initially. But if they do reject them, others will respond. The less experience we have, the less successful we feel. And we want to focus on our successes, not our failures. So the only people who really fail are those who quit. And in the singles world, there's so much fear that keeps people from even trying that before they're even in the game, they've already quit. And But if once in the game, they keep focusing on what they're doing right, not what they're doing wrong. They keep focusing on what's working instead of on what's not working. If they, if they keep focusing on their successes, they're going to find that they just keep succeeding more and more. It really is a, a choice to not take counsel from our fears and instead focus on what's going right. And that's the way that we look more secure and we ultimately enjoy and have more fun and it ultimately succeed. Well, and as you were talking, this was just a great reminder for me because when I first learned about everything that you teach, I like seriously had no fear. I mean, it was just like one up to anyone, texted anyone. and She still does that. <laughs> no, not, not as good as I used to, but even that technique of like after someone had gotten your your number at a party or whatever to text and be like, hey, I'd love for you to give me a call sometime. Like it works like a charm or even on dating apps doing it. And so I would have friends that would be like, oh, I like I could never do that. I'm so afraid of getting rejected. And I, I haven't been rejected plenty of times in my life, but it just like stinks so much less because you're like, ah. on to the next. <laughs> They're either going to respond or someone yeah, else will. Exactly. You know? I, mean, I think it goes back to exactly what you were talking about, too, with the skills. Because, I mean, what you're talking about, this relates to so much more than just dating, right? I mean, job uh -huh. interviews and other opportunities in life, like, it all comes back uh -huh. to those skills that you're talking about. So I, th I think that's awesome. Well, and, you know, even just in marriage, one thing that really turns women off is moping, brooding, and the silent treatment. It doesn't make a man look strong and confident um, when a guy pouts and withdraws and acts small or gets passive aggressive it doesn't make a guy look attractive it makes him look so much weaker so even in marriage i still have to be able to reject sometimes in marriage and i need to be able to say no to freely say yes that's very true these are just central in so many areas of life i got a i normally get really good reviews from clients and and you know i really appreciate that it, it means a lot to me that people will take a minute and fill out a review you know and they can do it anonymously and you know that way it can be real or whatever 
whatever, but I got a pretty scathing review yesterday and I just laughed. <laughs> you know, I, I just, you know, sometimes it just, we, we, where was I going? Rejection. I <laughs> oh, rejection. I mean, it still happens. It happens all the time. It still happens for me. And it just, it just can't define your value. If you let it define your value, then it changes the way you feel about yourself and your, and it, 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 you just can't let rejection define who you I are. I think that's a great one-liner right you there know? for dating. So Nelson Mandela quoted, I can't remember who the original author of his quote from his inaugural address was, but he quoted someone and because it really resonated about my own journey. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, or fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened, and this is the part that I really love. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We are born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It is not just in some of us. It is in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And I, I really feel like this is true, that when we are more grounded in our own value, and it goes back to that moment when I was praying about, do I put a fake ring on so that people don't ask if I'm, if I'm married? It all went back to that moment of pondering within myself, what did my marriage say about me? And to have faith in who I am. I care. I love. I, I'm committed. I'm hardworking. I'm willing to take responsibility. I make mistakes, but I don't, I don't engage in hurtful behavior, you know, um, I do the best I can. I'm a catch. I'm a catch. I have a lot to offer. And the kind of person I'm looking for will see that in me and they will see me for what I have to offer and they will pursue me and they will invest in me and they will respond to me. And that just is the truth. I have a lot to offer. And I, I knew, and this is another thing I felt in dating. I knew I was going to be good for somebody. I was looking for somebody who was going to be as good for me as I was for them. It wasn't about trying to prove my worth as if I'm doing a rain dance around somebody to to prove my worth and make them love me. No, I am just going to be who I am. I'm going to know what I'm worth. I'm going to know that I'm good for other people. And I am going to make a good faith effort, show who I am, care, be warm and engaging and inviting and honest and direct, and then let them make their choice. And I'm not afraid that what they decide defines who I am. They're, what they decide about me does not define my value. I think it takes a big realization to move to that mindset, though, because even from an early age, I mean, we are naturally just ingrained in our minds to worry about what others think and worry that they're going to reject us and worry about all those things that you just talked about. So I think moving from that paradigm shift, what, what you were just talking about, of moving from that securement and knowing where our faith is and knowing where our strengths are and our, that, that belief in ourselves, it I mean, that's is. a huge paradigm so, shift. So important. In the five stages of dating, um, there's actually a stage before that, which I call stage zero. Ground zero. Ground zero, creating a secure foundation. And whether someone comes to me and they're already in a relationship, so they don't need the first three stages or two stages of the dating process, or whether they're not dating at all, we always start with stage zero. And that starts with identifying their fears and the truth that will set them free from their fears. For those who struggle with perfectionism, a lot of times they either look for perfectionism in themselves, anxious attachment, where they look for perfectionism in another person, avoidant attachment, to, as the solution to their, their insecurity and anxiety about relationships. As we go through the fears and truths, the key thing I keep trying to have them go back to and that I identify is that it is not perfection that makes them lovable, um, that it is their imperfections that make them lovable. And, you know, as people listen to this, they've heard plenty of opportunities to hear my imperfection, but it makes me more relatable, you know, and even more trustworthy because they can see that I'm, I'm just human like them. And so the point is, it, it is our imperfections that make us lovable. And in the face of that, though, too, I want them to be grounded on who they really are. And I'll often look my clients in the, in the eyes, and I, I really try to ponder on what I already see about them. And as I speak what I see about them, I can see within them just this, this painful gratitude 
that somebody sees this, you know, and that it really does ring true, whether it's me looking at them and saying, you care deeply about doing the right thing. You love people. You sacrifice. You see the best in others. You try to do what is right. You would never intentionally hurt someone's feelings. And that that realization that other people can see these qualities within them that really speak to who they are. And when, when we put those things together and they can validate the truth about who they are and they can trust that and build on that, they become so much more resilient and confident and able to feel secure that other people will see their value too. And, um, but they need to see it first. And whatever that is within you to take that moment and ponder about what do their experiences really say about them? You know, what does the pain that they've gone through, if, if they look at all their pain and rejection they've gone through, look a little deeper and what does their behavior and all of that say? That I care, that I I'm willing to trust that I'm willing to try that I'm I keep getting up and I keep trying harder and that I I want to love deeply you know so if we can turn our pain and our loss into faith in truth and who we are, um, it gives us strength to keep going. So what are some of the carryovers that you've seen then? Because I mean, you said you did those years as a marriage and family therapist, and then you moved on to the dating coach. What crossover did you see in counseling on marriage and dating? I mean, were there huge parallels or was it was it pretty different for you? Um, there's at first I thought it was going to be pretty similar, but there's it's fairly different. And I think that that's part of the reason why it's it's hard to go to a counselor about dating because dating is a whole nother monster. And there really isn't a lot of good research and training programs on dating. You know, there's a lot of theories and concepts in communication and training and research and models on relationships and how to have relationships and what works in relationships. But that kind of requires that you actually can get into a relationship, you know. And so the, the problem is a lot of professional advice out there that uh, research and development and education and communication fields isn't on the early stages of dating. It's on relationships. So when I first started writing my books for people who were dating, the, the first focus was just trying to help people to avoid those who would be potentially abusive or manipulative. So I wrote my first section of my very first book, Dating Game Secrets for Marrying a Good Man. I wrote that and that section was called Be Safe. And then I realized, oh, I can't just help people be safe. I've got to help them with more than that. And then I started writing more on how to help them be confident and be successful. In the beginning, I had a kind of naive you know, view of that, a very simple view of that. But the more I kept doing dating coaching and working with singles, the more I realized how complex it really is to break down how to help people date. And so the carryover of my marriage and family therapy background and experience, you know, of course that helps with stage three and later, but I really had to create a whole new program to answer the many, many questions singles had that were keeping them from dating, from getting multiple dates and even being able to get into relationships and then dealing with all of the repeated rejection, loss, confusion, texting, online dating, online apps. You know what I mean? Like, confusion. And I just, I wrote, I'm not sure what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, you know, when I created my dating system, I wanted it to do everything. But even after I finished it seven years ago, then I created the Lasting Love Academy to keep filling in the gaps of more and more information I needed to give. And now I'm revamping the dating system again, the books to, because it's been seven years, it just... Oh, crap, there more. wasn't Tinder or Mutual back in the end. Uh, say, for example, I mean, that's one big change. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and then dealing with social media, right? Like, I, I'm just having to, to change, you know, what I teach to partially to help people be more effective with what keeps changing for them, but also because I've kept learning different ways to say and do things that have a little bit better effectiveness. So it's it's its own monster. It really is. And I think that for people who are married, they and people who are a little older or who are out of the scene and have been for a while, it's 
it's really hard to hear advice from them as much as singles want to be kind and appreciative. But people just really don't get how hard it <laughs> is. It's so true. You and always get the older people who are like, well, and then they just lay on this advice and you're like, yeah, yeah, like I'm, I'm doing that. Or like, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. you just try not to, you try not to feed the conversation. You try and almost be very nice really, but negated. Yeah. Like, yeah. Right. And it can feel very isolating. For singles, especially within religious groups, I think, because you go to church and it's full of married people and families a lot of times, and it, it can feel difficult to feel like you fit. And then when you get simple pat on the back kinds of advice from, from married people or criticisms, it just makes it that much harder to go to church or to feel like you fit and belong. And I, I've, I've been guilty of doing the same thing at different times, the more I work with singles the more I understand my own mistakes that I've made. Get it. And I'll often tell people that, that are single. Sundays are usually the worst day of the week for a lot of singles for a lot of different reasons. And I'm just impressed that they keep fighting forward and keep trying to hold on to their faith. And it takes a lot to remain single into your 20s and 30s and and not lose faith. So. so, I mean, you can tell that you're really passionate about all of these different concepts and the dating tips and even just people in your relationships themselves. I mean, what are your biggest rewards in being the dating coach? And also, what are your biggest struggles or trials? I, I think the biggest reward is that I get to do what I do. And I, I really feel super, super grateful that I love what I do. I also really like being preventative because when I did marriage counseling, I oftentimes didn't have a lot of ways to change the situation that people were in because their situation was... They were coming to you in the problem. Yeah. And if there's if one of their partners is lacking in empathy, what am I going to do with that? You know, I can't make somebody empathize and see another person's perspective when on a deep foundational level, they just either don't care, they don't have the ability to see the other person's perspective or they refuse to or they're more more personality disordered anyway or on a deep foundational level if they always justify rationalize blame felt very limited um in helping people to decide if they wanted to sit on the rock or the hard spot and with dating coaching i can i can just educate people with what they're dealing with now and do skill development and they still have choice to stay or leave in a fairly less painful way so but my biggest reward is really when I get my wedding announcement. That's expected. That's, I get, expected. that's just so fun. <laughs> or when somebody, you know, sends me a picture of their newest child. Or so in the last three and a half years, I've had over 120 engagements and marriages. Oh. And that was just since um, I started counting. So I didn't start counting till three and a half years ago. But I love that. And I love it when I just, yeah, I just, I, I love it when people take the time to say that something is helping them or has helped them. And, you know, it doesn't fix everything, but it's, you know, I, I just like seeing when people feel more confident and hopeful and when they're having fun. That's always one of the greatest rewards, too, is when people start saying dating's fun again. I'm like, <laughs> that's the whole point. You know, if you're not having fun, well, yeah, then what is something it? wrong. So then how did you gain <laughs> yeah. that credibility then? Because we were just barely talking, right, about how, you know, there are plenty of married adults out there who love to give their advice and this or that. And all of us single people are like, great, but no thank you, right? Thanks, but no thanks type thing. How did you gain that credibility of people listening to you and taking your advice? Well, I think people... Being patient with me and helping me learn along the way, too, you know, because it started off with me just speaking. I, you know, I, I started speaking, then I wrote my first book, and then I, I continued to get a lot of requests to speak. And then people just, you know, needing help, but then helping to teach me and, um, you know, helping me to understand their situation. And then I think just the better I got at meeting their needs and the more people did word of mouth, you know, and of course, I'm still speaking a lot. So that reaches hundreds of people at a time. But, you know, really, the majority of what I do is word of mouth, people referring other people or seeing an article that I did and passing it on or a podcast that I did and passing it on. I've done quite a bit of TV and radio. Uh, the challenge of TV and radio is it doesn't really reach my target audience. It, you know, reaches more of the housewives and, and things like that. So really the biggest, I've been willing to do it 
because I was asked. Usually when I did TV and radio, I was usually asked to speak and I'm happy to do it. But really the reputation I have created is more because others have created it for me by just sharing. No, and, and, that, and that speaks louder. I didn't say that's what speaks though. Is when you've got that word of mouth and that referral basis, I mean, that's that's what yeah. speaks. Your Utah's hitch. I know. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Right. Now, now what about trial then? What's your, what's your, what's the hardest part of your job? Um, helping people in stage one because it's the most painful stage. Yeah. <laughs> How do we get you a date? Yeah, well, or just because it's painful. You know what I mean? Like, I, I have to sit yeah, with no, people for sure. and, and just feel their pain with them. Listen and let them know they're not alone and then try to help them pick back up and keep going. And, I mean, I don't, That's I say that's the hardest part of the job, but not because I I'm not glad to do it, but because it, it's painful for them. And I feel that, you know what I mean? Like I had mm-hmm. a client yesterday who, a guy that she fell in love with, who was recently out of a divorce and he just basically made the decision that I'm, you're the easiest thing for me to get off my plate. And I'm just, things are just too hard for me right now. And so he just dumped her and given the, the, painful road she's been on like yeah that just is painful so it's not hard because I resent or dislike that part of the job it's just hard because man how do you not feel that it's hard on you it's hard how do you not feel that and I you know and and they don't need me to fix that they just need me to feel it with be present yeah yeah so in ending you've talked so much about what you do and given all this great advice so how can people contact you like what are the services that you offer well there's you know I really created my materials because I know not everybody can afford working with me as a coach right so do you do male groom orders (laughs) I would love to (laughs) I would love that I I have a friend who does matchmaking oh yes Utah's matchmaker Bring how it back. I mean, how can we contact so you? I really tried to create materials that could work for anybody on anyone's budget. My concept is it's not you, it's your technique. So that's one website is itsyourtechnique.com. And then my my products and materials are all basically through the Lasting Love Academy. So that is my other website, lastingloveacademy.com. You can learn about my products and services at both pages. So lastingloveacademy.com and itsyourtechnique.com. I do individual coaching, but I always start with a free 30-minute consult first so that people can get a sense of, you know, how I can help them and I can give them some specific, specific feedback about their situation. And they just don't, there's nothing to lose, right? There's, there's no, there's no risk to doing a free 30-minute consult, and I have a very no-pressure process. For people who just want my content and materials, that's where my books, audios, and videos in the Lasting Love Academy. I even have my materials where you can get everything for just $35 a month, and it's just like a six-month payment plan. So it can help people on any budget, and they can get individual pieces as well. So it, it can be pretty cost-effective. Another way that they can reach me is 801 801- Four four seven six thousand. So eight zero one four four seven six thousand, and they can call or text me at that. You can also go to my my website and fill out a contact form and contact me that way. So lots and lots of ways to contact me. Well, and I love that you give all those options because I think for me, I started out with just, I bought all your material and then I tried the coaching. And when she says she tried coaching, <laughs> she means she tried your coaching as well as she tried coaching all of her friends. It goes both ways. <laughs> but just, it really is no pressure. And what I've loved is that I, I think the thing that I love most about you and uh, and the different friends that I've had that have gone through you, you know, dating has its ups and flows. And sometimes, like, your heart is not in dating. And so you're taking a break. And any time that I'm in one of those moments, you're just like, you're like, okay, contact me when you're ready, you know. And I, I mean, you've done that with different friends. And that's something that I just appreciate so much is that you aren't like, well, if you aren't going to stick to seeing me this amount of time, I'm not seeing you. But you're just very flexible with, with people and where they're at. Sometimes we just need to be able to do the long game instead of always playing for the short game which will just burn us out. Um, it's more important that we get there eventually and we get there in a healthy way than we try to force things and we, we um, break down in the process. And we're ultimately, we are meant to love and be loved. And, and I think that that's the, that's the message. And I, you know, I'll have clients who will come in and they're like, I just feel like I, you know, it's never going to happen for me. And 
should I just quit trying and quit, you know, quit caring? And I'm like, no, that's a terrible goal. You know, you have a lifetime ahead of you to still love and be loved. I just want to empower people every step along the way. And one of my favorite movies is Galaxy Quest. Have you guys seen that show? I don't think so. I haven't even heard of it. It's a spinoff satire of Star, the Star Trek movies. Oh, okay. It's hilarious. It's one of my favorite shows. But, you know, as a spinoff of the Star Trek movies, there's the captain always says, never give up, never surrender. <laughs> and that's, I, you know, that's kind of my, my view of it is you are meant to love and be loved. And how could we ever give up on that? How could we ever give up on that? And if it takes a, a few years or five years or 10 years, it's worth it because you're going to get there. Well, thank you so much. This has been so great. Yeah. And way to be a business in Salt Lake County and represent. Yeah, no, really. Thank you for taking the time today. I mean, as you can see, Steph is very passionate about your, your stuff. And I mean that in, I mean that in a serious way. Like, you are you are helping people <laughs> is what I mean. So so thank you for taking the time to do a podcast with us I today. I feel grateful to do it. Thank you for asking me. And it was so nice to meet you, Natalie. And oh, it's so good to hear your beautiful voice again, Steph. And you guys have a great day. Thanks for having me. Here are some fun facts about Salt Lake County. Steph, did you know that pollution in Salt Lake City was so bad in the early 20th century that the city created a smoke department to strictly control polluters? Now, ironically, our pollution is still bad today. I mean, you know we're ranked like one of the, we're every single year, we're, we're one of the top of the nation. You know, know that, right? So how is that both, both Salt Lake and Provo and, and Cache Valley up in Logan, always on the top there. In fact, we even have a, a have you heard of UCAIR, U-C-A-I-R? Uh-uh. Utah Clean Air Partnership, I think is what it stands for. Yeah, so we have a whole campaign in Utah going for that of trying to get people to cut down on their on their driving trips and carpool and all that kind of stuff so we can lower the pollution. We're terrible here. It's our geography. Seriously. So, Gannett, did you know that the University of Utah was originally called the University of Deseret? Steph, why did they change it? I don't know. It didn't tell me that on the thing. (laughs) Okay, I've got one more for you. A huge copper pit mine ate the town of Bingham in the early 1970s. Did you know about that? I actually did because I met an old lady who lived in Bingham and she would always always reminisce about it, but she said that it was no longer there because of the copper pit. It's completely taken over. We're one of the largest copper pits out there. So Facts about Salt Lake County. We found them at ilovehistory.utah.gov. Thanks for listening, Utah. We want to give a special thanks to our sponsor, Wazi Tech, Utah's premier IT support company. They will help you with any of your IT needs. Go to www.wazitech.com. That's W-A-Z-I-T-E-C-H.com. If you love the beehive state, we're here to tell you why it is great. From Lake Powell up to Bear Lake, our scenery you just can't fake. Our number of counties is 29 All with plenty of places you can dine This western state is quite the hub To learn more, join with us at the Utah Fan Club Mm -hmm.